0: as an industry I think you know my my view and again I still feel like a relative newcomer to the industry so I don't want to tell people how to suck eggs but Mm. um but I don't think we've done a great job of kind of prosecuting our own case you know Mm. and and putting out a strong case for coal and that's something I'm talking to other industry leaders about you know I think the industry needs to stand up for itself everybody's Mm. sort of hidden behind the peak bodies um and that can't continue to happen uh because otherwise you know we'll get taxed out of existence and uh People cheer us on the way out, and that's sort
1: of the way it's heading. Coal miner and businessman Nick Jorce appearing on The Business Of podcast last week, not afraid to share his pessimism on current energy policies. As Nick said, the resources and energy industry hasn't sold itself well. It hasn't stood up for itself adequately and sold the story that fossil fuels are essential to life and prosperity in this country and around the world. In this episode, we're taking a break from Chris Bowen and his never-ending dogma on renewables. He's read 30 books on climate change, you know. This week, Morris Newman and I discuss how government and bureaucracy is failing consumers. Daniel Westerman, head of the energy market operator, was interviewed on ABC Radio and offered his insights on risks ahead for the electricity system. I think we'd all prefer if Westerman offered less ideology and more pragmatism. Nick continues on government interventions in the form of higher taxes, price caps and domestic reserves. We've had, um,
0: well, I mean, last June the uh, Treasurer in Queensland put the royalties here the highest in the world, right? So we've got 40% top-rate royalties, which is just unbelievable. I mean, that's no way to ensure investment and jobs. Um, and now we've got reservation policies, you know, domestic reservation policies. We've got a federal government talking about um, legislating to basically enable them to dictate where our gas goes, mm. um, which, um, you know, tearing up contracts with our long-term partners in Japan and uh, Korea, etc. Um, you know, we've got price caps, we've got a new um, uh, federal EPA coming in, so a new whole new body, you know, which yeah. will probably uh, be another roadblock in the way to getting projects going. We've got a Greens uh, leader saying very clearly they want no more coal and gas projects in the country. And,
1: um, you know, so there's a lot of headwinds. For an example of these headwinds, check out how the impartial journalist host of the publicly funded ABC's flagship current affairs program 7.30 report, with a charter demanding balance, is desperate to lock the Energy Minister into committing Australian businesses to even more stringent emissions reduction targets. And of course, no more resource projects.
2: impasse that exists at the moment in these negotiations, to agree that after those coal projects there will be no more coal, is that a way of breaking the impasse?
3: well we've assumed we've assumed for the as i said before on the basis of prudent and conservative planning we've assumed a whole lot of facilities not just coal and gas lithium mines etc because we hope those lithium mines for example are developed but in relation no, to the, in contem- relation to coal I, no no i'm not contemplating and will not contemplate any sort of blanket moratoriums on on any particular proposals i mean what we've got to do is have a regime in place which deals with existing facilities new facilities here's the choice before the parliament Here's the choice before the parliament Sarah. If there are new facilities and this doesn't pass, there'll be no constraint mm. on emissions. If there are new facilities and this does pass, there'll be a constraint and indeed new facilities will be obliged to comply with the world's best practice Let on emissions. Let me just ask you one, one final thing on the
2: those, that's one final thing on those new projects. Will you be asking those new projects coal and gas projects that are coming down the line to abate 100% of their emissions?
3: we'll be requiring all facilities, whether they're coal, gas, lithium, anything, uh, to comply with world's best practice. That's quite... You know, some people say that's too onerous. You know, Some of the submissions say this will be too hard. I don't think it is. I think it's appropriate that in Australia, uh, which has restored climate leadership since last year, to require our new facilities to be the best in the world when it comes to emissions. Uh, I believe that's an appropriate thing to ask and that's what we'll do.
2: Um, it's a complicated topic, and thank you very much for coming on to talk about it. No doubt there's a lot more to say on the subject. Thank you, Chris Bowen.
3: Sure will be. Pleasure, Sarah.
1: Europe is suffering similar troubles. Ralph Scholhammer is a European energy analyst and commentator whose piece in Spiked Online goes like this. The slow death of Europe is the headline. The byline goes, industry is being strangled by sky-high energy bills and mountains of bureaucracy. Schollhammer continues, a few days ago... BASF, the world's largest chemical company, announced plans to downsize its production in Europe, closing several of its German production facilities and shedding around 2,600 jobs. The German chemicals giant cites increased energy prices as one reason for this, but it omits some crucial other factors, namely that Europe's excessive bureaucracy and sky-high taxes means that it is no longer a globally competitive market. In the future, European customers will, will be supplied with chemicals from China, South Korea, the u.s the piece goes on with a bit of history about the basf chemical organization and describing how the basf the company funded the development of the haber bosch process which led to the development of nitrogen-based fertilizers uh, which has been an incredible discovery for the western world the article continues today it is not only basf and the once admired german chemical industry that are moving out of europe Carmaker Volkswagen also recently announced that the bulk of its future electricity vehicle production will be moved from Germany to the US. And it's not just Europe that is in trouble either. Right now, the US is trying frantically to reduce its dependence on Asia, only to discover that having neglected its industrial base for decades, it lacks the skilled workforce needed to reshore production. Schollhammer wraps up his article suggesting that every nation's leaders must ask themselves if they are managing decline or managing ascent. And he said it's very clear that Europe is heading into descent. Given the parallels between the European experience, the UK, uh, Canada, US and Australia, uh, it seems that we're all in a similar predicament. For an example of the, the failure of politicians, in my opinion, have a listen to the waffle and obfuscation by UK Labour MP for Leicester South, Jonathan Ashworth, interviewed here by Andrew Neil.
3: One of these missions is to generate all of our electricity by 2030 with zero carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. That was one of the missions. Now, yesterday, at this time, 51% of all of our electricity needs were generated by gas, over half by gas. You seriously expect us to believe that you'll get that down to zero within five years? Well, that's our ambition. If you're going to be net zero... What will happen when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining? Where will the electricity come from? We can do so much more with renewables in this country, with wind, with solar, It doesn't matter how much wind you have if the wind isn't blowing. I'm baffled by how you think we can get to a net zero electricity system
2: by 2030 that won't involve gas. But we're going to be investing in the industries of the future. We're going to be investing in renewables. We're going to be investing Uh, in tidal. No
3: matter how much wind or solar you have, we will still need gas as a balancing item when the wind isn't blowing, what will you do? People can judge us after five years. We're
2: talking about where we may be after the four or five years of a Labour government. Huge amounts of methane escape into our atmosphere through the process of gas extraction, through leaks, but also from deliberate releases for venting and flaring. But leaked methane doesn't just pollute our air and represent a wasted energy source. It also affects our health. As methane is leaked, so too are other volatile organic compounds, including benzene, toluene, n-hexane, and carbonyl sulfide. These travel from their source into the air that all of us breathe. Volatile organic compounds cause cancer, premature birth, respiratory, neurological, and cardiovascular diseases, and they cause sudden death. The climate warming associated with release of these compounds into the air that we all breathe contributes to extreme weather events, to bushfires, to longer allergy seasons and to the spread of infectious diseases.
1: Australian politician Monique Ryan is a doctor, a GP, and you'd expect her to want to be taken seriously. Here, she's speaking absolute nonsense. She's literally suffering more from vehicle exhaust in her Melbourne inner city enclave than anything to do with methane extraction either offshore in Bass Strait or thousands of kilometres away in South Australia and Queensland, could ever do to her. Listen to the way she links volatile organic compounds to cancer, premature birth and sudden death, as if standing beside a gas stove will end your life. I'm sure the millions of professional chefs, home cooks and weekend barbecue users will automatically down tools and stop using gas. Now I have two pieces of paper in front of me. One is a 2016 report by the CSIRO on methane and volatile organic compound emissions in New South Wales excuse me, the other is a 2013 gas sample from one of the coal seam gas majors in Queensland. Quoting from the CSIRO report, measurements at natural and rural environments and remote locations associated with mining or CSG activities were in the trace to low concentration range and many of the priority volatile organic compounds could not be detected in these environments. Obvious impacts on ambient volatile organic Compound's concentrations were seen from more intensive sources, such as those resulting from animal feeding, municipal solid waste disposable, and wastewater treatment, where compounds specific to the activity were apparent. So according to the CSIRO, who hopefully you can trust on most of these things because they're using real data that they've measured themselves, are saying that they couldn't even find these volatile organic compounds in the regions associated with methane extraction. Now I'll read some data from a gas sample report from a NADA certified laboratory. So these units are all in percent uh, by molecule, I believe. Starting from the top, methane, 98.8. Nitrogen, 1.1. Carbon dioxide, 0.16. Ethane, 0.01. Helium, 0.01. And that's it folks. Oxygen, not detected. Propane, not detected. Butane, not detected. Hexanes, heptanes, octanes. Hydrogen, not detected, not detected. Ethane, carbon monoxide, not detected. And so to repeat, as I, as I responded in, in words on the, on the Twitter feed of Dr. Monique Ryan, MP, lady, you live in inner city Melbourne. 90% of the country's population lives in cities breathing in car exhausts, not methane or any of its minuscule contaminants. Get a grip. You're a doctor, for
4: God's sake. New South Wales will have to consider extending the life of the Araring Power Station. It's forecast to close in 2025. So, simple question with a yes or no answer. Are you prepared to extend its life too?
3: Well, I'm certainly not going to undermine the position
1: of the government because we might be in a negotiation with a private company, but I can't rule it out. There's no prospect of us ruling that out at the moment because we might need that Power station to provide power to the east coast of Australia and New South Wales in particular. It's responsible for 25%. So, if you take that out of the marketplace, then you've got a shortfall. AEMO, the national regulator, released a report last week indicating that we do need to worry about shortfalls and supply in the energy markets over the next 24 months. That's one of the reasons why we've started this energy security corporation. We're worried exactly about these things. Chris Minns could well be the Premier of New South Wales in a couple of weeks following the March 2023 state election. New South Wales, of course, is Australia's most populous and energy-consuming state. Uh, He's interviewed there by Ben Fordham on 2GB Radio, talking about the possibility of New South Wales government, or the taxpayers, purchasing Araring back from Origin, which is an interesting feat because it was only... I think the privatisation deal was only finished in around about 2013. And, of course, they're talking about buying it back. It's the obvious choice considering they're going ahead full steam with wind and solar, which, as everyone knows, has a few issues in terms of supply. Here's the head of AMO, Daniel Westerman, talking about the reliability issues released in their most recent report.
3: Uh, Every mainland state will see reliability challenged by the retirement of five coal-fired power stations this decade. And that does total around uh, 13% of the current capacity of the national electricity market. And so what we're calling for is uh, a a continued call for urgent investment in in generation, in what we call firming capacity, um, and in transmission to make sure that consumers have energy uh, when they need it.
1: Daniel Westerman is being a bit cute with the numbers there. The 13% figure he mentions of total installed capacity Obviously includes all the uh, wind and solar uh, and anything else that's on the on the grid. When you take the the announced withdrawal of a four, over four thousand megawatts of coal, and you have just twenty-two thousand megawatts of it available, you're more like in around the twenty percent of dispatchable capacity being withdrawn. And it wouldn't be right to talk about shutting down and blowing up coal-fired power stations without a, a dose of reality from Senator Matt Canavan, also here on 2GB. And we caught up with the Nationals' Senator
4: Matt Canavan on this topic today. This is what Matt Canavan had to say.
3: Uh, well, Ben, we're going to have to keep a open unless you want to live in the dark. Uh, that's going to have to happen, whatever politicians say before this election. We shouldn't be blowing up the Liddell coal-fired power station, may I add, too. It's, it's going to shut in a couple of months. But what the Germans did over there was they actually kept their coal-fired power stations mothballed. They didn't it just blow them up. And they, over the past year, German Greens government, by the way, has opened up 24 coal-fired power stations in Germany to keep their lights on and fight back against Vladimir Putin. I mean, we shouldn't be blowing up our infrastructure here in the Ukraine. The Russian missiles blow up coal-fired power stations. Here in Australia, we just do it ourselves. <laughs>
1: My guest today is Morris Newman. In lieu of asking Morris to describe his history, I instead asked listeners to look him up and what they'll find is Morris has been working in government and business for a good long time and our discussion today will focus on that. People who know me understand my criticisms of bureaucracy and what I believe is an unfortunate slide into uninspiring pedestrian politics with outright dangerous outcomes for Australian energy security. Morris, thanks for joining us today.
4: My pleasure, thank you for asking me Ben.
1: My first question starts at the top, and it is this. Have politicians stopped caring about Australians? I feel as if the priorities of the corporate and political elites have changed. Is it as simple as we are now so peaceful and comfortable that we have lost perspective of what matters most, for example, energy and food security? Or is there a more ominous threat from the United Nations, World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, the billionaires, the Black Rocks and Vanguards, and other big corporates? Is there undocumented pressure on our politicians to focus on their priorities over priorities in Australia's best interests?
4: Well, I suspect there is pressure, but more particularly, I think what we have seen in the space of the last 30 or 40 years is the rise and rise of career politicians. Uh, if you look at the people who are currently in our, in our parliaments, many of them have never worked in anything other than a minister's office doing research in a trade union, that, that sort of thing. But they haven't been out there actually uh, making payroll and taking business risks and all of those things. So it's been a very, it's been a parallel universe in many respects. I think too, I mean, I'm hearing this, you mentioned the United Nations and the way in which we continue to to bow down, but it strikes me when I'm listening to some of the views, if we, why we should be voting yes for The Voice, it is because think of what all the people across the world will think if we vote no, they will see us as being racist. And I think to myself, well, yeah, maybe China will think we're racist and maybe uh, someone in Iran or somewhere else. But uh, does it matter? I mean, what we need to be doing is looking after ourselves. And to your point, what we're confronting, I think, is a cringe.
1: You mentioned career politicians who should be accountable to voters, but more and more they don't appear to be accountable to voters. They seem to be working for the bureaucracy instead. I've heard that uh, a new politician is told pretty much straight away by the bureaucrats how the place runs and who makes the decisions. Is there any truth to that?
4: I think there is. I think uh, probably most ministers, by and large, are captive to their departments. And so essentially, if the department uh, is in disagreement with a minister, uh, they will take the view that they'll wait the minister out because at the next election, the minister may not be there. Uh, So I think there is no doubt uh, an element of that, a strong element of that within the bureaucracy and these bureaucracies or uh, well, not are becoming have become uh, self-centered, self-perpetuating collectives whose primary objective is self-preservation, an increase in their own power base. Uh, and I think that it's very difficult to dispute that. If you look at the size of government, it's continued to grow and grow and grow. And to become more interventionist in everybody's lives.
1: Before you said self-protection, I was going to uh, I was going to throw that in as well.
4: Well, Ben, what we've seen is the creep of the welfare state, the creep of socialism, where politicians have found it electorally profitable to promise all sorts of things uh, in exchange for somebody's or a, a, a group of people's vote uh, in their particular constituencies. And so, again, we've seen this compounding over 30, 40, 50 years to uh, the point now where we've got a tr- we're trillion dollars in debt, where government, as I said earlier, controls every aspect of our lives and looks to control even more. I mean, we have uh, in the Federal Treasurer now, uh, Dr. Jim Chalmers, a, uh, a, 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 an essay which says essentially that he wants to corral People's personal savings, that's superannuations, corporations, government, of course, and uh, big big unions, and we'll all come together in a in a happy coalition, and they will dictate uh, from the centre the way in which things should be. Now that isn't uh, that is socialism. It's actually fascism. It's a form of socialism, but it's it's pure and simple, and that seems to me to be the direction that we've been heading in for the last fifty or sixty years. And that's borne
1: out by the evidence. We have uh obviously we have in the energy system, just uh focusing on that, we have the the Queensland, uh, which is almost totally controlled by the Queensland government and its state-owned corporations, but now we have Daniel Andrews in Victoria promising to reinstate the uh a state-owned electricity commission down there, and where we have Chris Mins, the potential uh New South Wales premier in a few weeks, promising to institute a state-owned electricity commission in New South Wales and then we have the Feds with the Snowy Hydro and, and their interventions as well uh there seems to be a trend towards more government intervention and more control
4: well I think it's accelerating there's no question the trend is there and we what we're seeing essentially is is renationalization. Uh, and it may well be before long we'll see a government bank because the bank uh, branch closures and so on and so forth so Yeah, this is a steady march towards a socialist regime uh, becoming increasingly totalitarian and dictatorial in the way in which our affairs are being run. And while this is not going to be particularly disruptive to me in my lifetime, it is likely to be for you and certainly for my grandchildren, and I do worry about that.
1: Yeah, I think about it too. Um, So that brings me to the last a truly conservative policy platform offered to Australian voters? I've thought about this question myself and I've asked people, and I come back to Tony Abbott and stop the boats and repeal the carbon tax. He did a he got a couple of things through, but he also made a few mistakes, I believe. He didn't get all it done and he even added a budget repair levy and a big tax on banks. So, in your opinion, what's the last conservative government that we actually had? And are there any conservative policies being floated around by any of the parties
4: at the moment? I don't see too many and I think probably Tony Abbott was the last so-called conservative Prime Minister and of course uh, there were uh, some soft edges to to uh, his policies as well and to his government. Uh, he was then of course succeeded by Malcolm Turnbull and then Scott Morrison who may as well have been Labor Prime Ministers uh, because uh, again their their policies were for more intervention for bigger government. And essentially for for greater debt and uh, we're now contemplating higher taxes so it is inevitable that if you want to keep growing government that is where you will end up and as i say there was essentially no pushback in fact i remember mr morrison as prime minister saying that uh, i don't care how woke you are or how woke you're not uh, it doesn't add to to one job well uh, in fact markets do add to jobs, and the evidence is clearly in, not just in Australia, but wherever you look around the world, that uh, the bigger government becomes, the lower the level of productivity and the greater the wealth disparity. And China is the greatest uh, exponent of that, where you have more billionaires that live in China than the United States, India and Germany combined. And the wealth gap in china is greater than in the united states so these are people who uh, promote equity and and fairness and all of those things but uh, the reality is and this is not propaganda from the so-called right uh, the evidence is for those who want to see we are looking at uh, the antithesis of what they actually advocate and promise
1: uh equity for me but not for thee for the billionaires uh, yeah yeah <laughs> they look up we, we have our own sort of uh wealthy cabal that sort of is having an effect on our policies the simon Holmes of court, the mike cannon brooks the twiggy forests uh i might get in trouble for saying so but I, I i don't think the evidence supports mike cannon brooks's uh interpretation of the market and how well he's doing for agl because agl's share price is just not good
4: well, that's right. But I mean the market that he's talking about is the energy market, which is probably one of the most distorted markets we have in this country.
1: Morris, how do we regain trust in the institutions? They've been plagued by activists or at least people who place ideology and praise from the green movement over doing their jobs. Most of the most of the bureaucrats in the institutions, and I'm talking about sort of AMA, uh aemc the aer even the um even finkel's energy security Board, sort of malcolm turnbull's energy security board just a side note if you have an organization called an energy security board that's telling you that you've got a problem to start with right absolutely How, how do we get these bureaucracies to focus on sort of looking after how do we get them to look down and not up to their masters
4: well the time has to come when it becomes politically profitable For politicians to do the sorts of things which you and I would like to see happen. The only problem I see is that we're running out of time. I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens with BP, which obviously is a a major oil and gas as well as renewable energy company, who apparently are becoming uh, disappointed in the returns they're getting from their renewable energy investments and are looking to concentrate more on fossil fuels. Now, I'm not quite sure in reality how that is going to work out because they will have people like the United Nations and have the the central banks and the commercial banks all saying, well, we're not going to give you any money. And and so it's not clear to me how they're going to be able to stand out against what is this tidal wave. But uh, it may well be at the end of the day, like it or not, and whether you do like it or not, Markets do work and you can distort them and distort them and distort them. But at the end of the day, uh, they will have their day of reckoning and that day of reckoning will be much worse than if the adjustment had taken place over time.
1: Yes, it's and it's incredible that all this market intervention has just uh, resulted in scarcity, which means that the record profits for the Shells and the, and the Santos and and everyone is just is going through the roof. Um, that seems to be lost on, on a lot of people, uh, you mentioned markets. So price caps where we've got, a uh, Matt, Matt Keane in New South Wales released, uh, a government Gazette on the, on Friday, the 23rd of December at 4 30 PM, <laughs> <laughs> implementing a, a coal reserve in New South Wales, even on the export, uh, coal, coal mines, um, who knows how they're meant to reserve coal when there's no rail to get it to a power station. Um, so. Market caps, and we've got the gas price cap as well from the Feds. Where have we had price caps in Australia in the past, and and has it ever worked? What's your experience
4: with these? Well, my experience is a lot more than yours, Ben. I'm probably old old enough to be your grandfather. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. (laughs) But I do remember we did have during the war price caps. Uh, We had rationing and price caps. Uh, They don't work, and, of course, you get black markets and all sorts of other things. When it comes to energy, what we will be seeing is huge distortions i think we've got liddell closing is it in may of this year uh we've had yeah so you know you can keep the price cap on but it doesn't mean that you're going to get more energy it just simply means you're going to get less and that's what we're beginning to see and it's all very well to blame mr putin but the west and i conclude europe uk us and all of that have been essentially building to this point where Prices were going to go through the roof, and that's what they are doing. Uh, and of course, uh, one of the other side effects of this, particularly when it comes to reserving in, in relation to coal, you have countries like Japan, who see their national security bound up in energy and their access to supplies of coal, saying that they uh, see Australia now as a as a political risk. Uh, this has never been the case in my lifetime. Um, I, I can't imagine that we would have been seen as a political risk ever before. Uh, and so you would have to wonder, when we're looking down the track 10 or so years, when it comes to investment in Australia, how some of these foreign organisations or corporations are going to be viewing us? Because if you can't be relied upon, uh, then clearly you've got to look somewhere else. And I think the the consequences of this, I am aware that the Japanese in particular are absolutely apoplectic about what we're doing in relation to coal. It's been in the, in the Japanese newspapers. Uh, but we seem to be totally oblivious or deaf to their concerns.
1: Despite the, the massive bureaucracy and the organisations who are uh, purpose-built to look at these relationships and manage these processes, um, surely these like you mentioned, the Japanese, and I think the Koreans are in that basket as well, uh, talking to Australia and all the all the ministers or the trade ministers or the foreign ministers or the diplomats um, and even at all the different levels of bureaucracies and saying, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? And surely that those conversations are being filtered up to the the politicians, the cabinet ministers um, is so that there's obviously a, a pressure building from that side of things. Uh, and a pressure building, which has always been there from sort of, I'll just the green blob uh, and the the teals and the greens and their ilk. Where's the breaking point? Does it does it become a case where the politicians have to jump up and down inside their own party room and force force the hand of the Albos and the and the Chris Bowens and the Jim Chalmers, or or does the uh, does all this information just get roughshod ridden over? in in the quest for a a transition?
4: Well, I think it's sort of covered in your opening, Ben, that when it comes to politicians, they are self-serving, they are captured to some extent or to a large extent by their their bureaucracies, and they are really playing to a smaller audience because the so-called quiet Australians aren't jumping up and down and demonstrating in the streets maybe when we come to the coming winter that uh, when the lights go off and you can't warm your house uh, maybe then people mm. will begin to realize there are real life consequences and we might jump up and down and talk about heat but more people die of the cold than of the heat and uh, depending on what sort of winter we're going to have uh, there are going to be serious consequences and of course those consequences always fall most on the vulnerable and those who are least able to afford the sorts of things that uh, some of us are fortunate enough to be able to.
1: Yeah, it does seem clear that when, when you talk about that divide between the, I'll, I'll crudely call it the haves and the haves not, you've got the uh, Matt Canavan is advocating for greater energy security uh, and he's a regional queensland base. And regional Queensland in the last federal election didn't lose any seats to the Greens or the or the Teals or, the, or even the Labor Party. Um, the inner city, uh, more well-off groups. Obviously, we've got the Teals influence. Um, some of that seems to be personal vendetta from uh, the Simon Holmes Accord versus the Josh Frydenbergs and all that all that sort of fun, mucky stuff in politics, but none of it's good for the country. And yet you have uh, politicians, doctors, doctors and doctors' wives, like the Spenders and the Steggles and the uh, Monique Ryans, going out of their way to try and... Reduce our energy security. Do they get these briefings from the from the diplomats that say that Japan's increasingly worried and Korea's increasingly worried, and um, the whole world is is shuddering at this at
4: this transition that's going on? Well, Ben, neither you nor I. At least I won't speak for you. Certainly, I don't get any briefing from diplomats or from departments. But I can read, and I do read uh, widely, and I do know how some of these measures have been received. Uh, outside of australia on those, from those countries which rely upon us and we have been mm. found wanting now i don't think i think their their time horizons are so short term they just don't care but uh, the the response from countries like japan korea those uh, that depend upon us for reliable supplies these
1: India as well India
4: yep. as well the response is long tail it doesn't happen overnight but they will look to diversify their their imports and australia will be yep. one a country that will suffer
1: well australia has done this in in response to some of the impacts that china's done on our on our imports so we've as a result obviously we've had the some grain issues there's been some wine issues there's been some coal issues with ships held up in Chinese ports over the years, and now we've uh, Australia's managing to diversify and find other markets. It seems natural that countries, if, if they're in the same position, looking at an Australian product or Australian resource, and they're having trouble getting it uh, because of our domestic politics, then they will look to other
4: areas to get it. Absolutely. Uh, there is no question about that. And it's not only the question of sourcing of raw materials or any product. It's a question of investment. That if they see australia as a political risk if they see that, that the playing field is uh is is skewed to one particular group namely environmentalists or whatever they will invest elsewhere i mean it's not rocket science it's quite it's quite simple uh, but that's that's the road that we have chosen to go down and it's difficult to reverse because there's loss of face involved i mean we have a uh an energy minister in the federal parliament who is telling us that nuclear is a, an option that uh, is totally unaffordable and we shouldn't be even thinking about it. Uh, we're all going to be driving electric cars in another ten or twenty years. Uh, no sense of where we're going to get uh, the the power to to. Yeah, well, look, you know these issues better than I do, Ben. But I mean, it is it is fanciful. It doesn't bear up to any sense of uh, any evidence at all. And you don't need, as I say, briefing from uh, energy experts, from departments or anybody else. It's quite obvious.
1: Yeah, I was, I was hoping it would be obvious, but um, we keep coming back to the fact that we're, we keep coming up with policies and politicians who go the opposite way, in some cases, as fast as they can, not much of a break on them. This seems to me like a I don't even know if it's a competency issue, but that's that's the best word I can use to describe it. How are we meant to measure competence in a in a government? Is it the vote? Do, land, do landslide victories count or are they just a reaction? If I look around the world and I look at politics and how the energy systems and how the, the people are feeling and how it's being reported, I see a lot of um, upheaval. In especially in the West, I mean, the authoritarian Eastern countries, say China and Russia, and that they've they've got their own internal problems, and we might never know that accurately. But in the West, in the UK, the US, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, there's an upheaval going on, and it seems that the governments are largely incompetent. But there's a couple that stand out. For example, DeSantis in Florida seems to be uh, kicking goals and uh, cementing his position, and saying things that make sense. Why do you think we don't have pol- a politician like DeSantis uh, in Australia coming through? What's different about Australia that's going to hold us back from that?
4: Well, I think uh, that the way in which, the, uh, I dare say, the media, the fact that uh, academics, so there's a, a, a total, I mean, we, we remember the the way in which Tony Abbott was undermined. Uh, and I wouldn't, I mean, I guess it's from your, your own perspective, but I wouldn't have thought that. What Tony Abbott was proposing was radical. Uh, but I think this is what we're faced with. And in the United States, it's quite interesting. We're seeing an actual uh, emigration from the north to the south. And so what you're finding is the those people who have got money and skills are moving from California, from New York, from, the, the if you like, the woke states, to places like Florida, Texas, arizona and so on where they believe there is more uh more freedom and there's more market uh, uh, activity there that they can actually prosper and there's more mobility through the wealth classes this is leaving country uh, states like california new york and so on uh, being settled by people who have got no money who rely upon government and essentially uh see themselves as victims and will will remain so so it's going to be very interesting to see how that is settled in the united states because there's a clear divide which is opening and it's the the people who are flooding across the borders from mexico and from wherever else are ending up in the north and uh, people down in the south are the ones who've got the skills and the money
1: see i'd like to i'd like to see australia has the bones of of that we've got our federalism but i the more I see of uh, politics, I see that the um the state politicians are very happy to hand uh, the control and the power uh, back to the the feds. For example, why do we even have an, a federal energy minister? What's the point of him? I'd like to see him like a coordinator role, like a side role of some other group and it's the same with education and health. I suppose you could say that as well. Is anyone is anyone in your circle advocating for a return to those those kind of thoughts?
4: Well, I thought in New South Wales we had a premier in Gladys Berejiklian and uh, in in, um, uh, Premier Perrottet, who did have a sense of competition between, in other words, competitive federalism. But that seems to have gone uh, by the board. I mean, to your point, why do we have a, a an education minister in in Canberra, the education is carried out in the states and is governed by the states. The same with health, the same with uh, so many of these activities. We have a double up because we might talk about competitive federalism, but it doesn't work. Uh, Everybody looks to the feds to equilibrate through the tax system that uh, I've got a a government which is uh, extravagant in the way in which it spends our money, uh, and then looks to the feds to top up uh, our budgets. So again, this is there is no sense, there's no conviction that we need competition because it's healthy, and that sometimes you need to make some sacrifices, you need to make uh, take uh, look at priorities where money should go here rather than there. But at the moment, uh, seem, people seem to be blind to this, and I mean to the earlier point you make that uh, we do repeat more and more the same mistakes that we've been making for the last 20 or 30 years in the expectation, or certainly given the promise, that uh, this time it will be different. Well, Albert Einstein had a saying for that, that if you keep repeating the same thing, expecting to get a different result, it's insanity. And that's exactly what it is.
1: We've got five minutes to go. My last question, I wanted to wrap it up, and I'd like to think about, um, we've talked about some of the, uh, the failings and the problems and and the issues that are in our, in our midst. Where is, how do we arrest the slide? What's the, as a, as a basic consumer, um, I don't, I don't see myself as any smarter or better than anyone else out there. Although with my sort of training experience, I do have some, some insights into the, uh, the energy system, but the political system, you know, is, uh, is, is a fairly opaque for most people, I think. How do we arrest the slide? And I and say, I guess in we, as in sort of I'm more on the activist side now in my life, I guess, uh, trying to raise awareness and and debate things and, and discuss problems in the expectation that there'll be a better answer because I don't think what we're doing at the moment is good. So how do we, how do we turn it around?
4: The problem, I think, Ben, and I'm not being pejorative in this, most people just want to get on with their lives. Uh, the sorts of things that you and I are talking about they see as being too esoteric to get involved with, and I guess to some extent they feel disenfranchised. That yeah, I've got a vote uh, in three years or four years, whatever it is, and I'll end up with a politician, and they won't make any difference. So they become switched off. I suppose is, is the best term to use. And how they become engaged may only come as a consequence of some sort of uh, crisis. Now, how they flip when there is a crisis and we're talking about the potential for a crisis in energy coming up uh, and we are looking at possibility uh, of a serious recession uh, how people are going to react to that whether they're going to say "Oh, we we need government to to save us uh, or they're going to say we want to go back to having some sort of volition over our own lives and get you people in 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 Canberra or in Macquarie Street or wherever they are, out of our lives because we're just not able to. Uh, we just can't keep going like this. And the decisions, your your performance has been such that uh, it's been one mistake after another. And, and we we talk about Snowy Hydro too. That's topical at the moment. We talk about renewable energy push. We talk about all of these things. They are these are just white elephants which have been. Uh, uh, essentially, vanity projects at the time, which have been meant to push somebody over the line at an election to say, "Look, I'm <laughs> visionary," and of course, uh, we end up having to pay the price for all of that. We saw it in the case of uh, the pandemic. We see it time and time and time again. Uh, I suspect that, uh, and people see it when, if you're in Sydney with the transport, uh, where we've got uh, ferries that won't cross the harbour because the, the through, through the harbour heads because they weren't designed to do that, even though they were supposed to do that. I could go on and on uh, and make the same point in different ways. But it's quite clear government is not the answer. The competition is what we need. We need markets to play out. We don't want the sorts of distortions that are coming down the track from all of this intervention. And uh, the institutionalized, rigidities that uh, are embedded in our system make it so much more difficult to root out. And this is one of the problems that Xi Jinping is facing in China, that the more you concentrate risk, the greater the potential for calamity that is down the track. And he's facing that, and I think uh, there's a real risk that we are heading for a very serious crisis. How it is played out uh, in real terms, we can only wait and see.
1: Morris on that uh, on that upbeat note. Uh, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
4: Thank you. It's been a pleasure too, Ben.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe tell your friends.